it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And thanks to Cry Malt, I'm Matt Kirkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. And this week we meet Alistair Turnbull from Lobethal Beer House. This is a fun conversation. As you'll hear, Alistair gave up a banking career to open a brewery way back in 2007, and even then was worried that he had already missed the boat when it came to craft beer. 14 years later, he says he is working 100 hours a week, humping kegs to local venues around Lobethal and making less money than he did in banking and with no plans for a cashed-up exit. But you'll also hear Alistair couldn't be happier doing what he's doing and has a viable and sustainable business. And late last year, he took home three of the top trophies in the Royal Adelaide Beer and Cider Awards, including Champion Beer. This is a great chat about knowing what you want to do in your business and focusing on that, despite everything else that's going on around you. I hope you find it as interesting and fun as I did. Alistair Turnbull, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Uh, thank you for having me, mate. Oh, mate, a pleasure. It's been long, long overdue. We, we seem to have had a bit of a run recently of some of the early craft brewers, um, you know, some of the early entrants into the industry, and we're continuing that today because uh, Lobethal Beer House has certainly been, uh, you know, one of the, uh, probably not pioneer, but very uh, early, to the, uh, early to the craft beer wave. Yeah, it's interesting. When we uh, when we first started, I actually, for a moment there, thought that I might have missed the boat. Um, <laughs> but then, but then when I had to go out to customers and try to explain what craft beer was and what the difference between what we did and what the other larger brewers were doing, significantly larger brewers were doing at the time, um, it was always quite a challenge. What <laughs> you know, What are you doing that's different? And I'm sort of looking at people and thinking, well, gosh. <laughs> And the other frustration, of course, at the beginning was always dealing with all the various authorities that I'm sure everyone's fully aware with when you start to try and get liquor licenses and and council approvals for development applications and all those sorts of things. I'm, everyone will probably have a horror story of one description or another, despite the fact that all of the various governing bodies like to pat you on the back and congratulate themselves when you do get up and running if you happen to be successful. <laughs> yeah, I'm just uh, trying to think of the the name of the um, iconic brewer, but he was the first brewer to set up a craft brewery in New South Wales for a long time, and they didn't. New South Wales didn't have a form to open a brewery. Um, I reckon that would be Jeff Shara. Jeff Shara, that's it. That's uh, who, yeah, I was, who I was yeah. trying to think of. So, I had the I had the pleasure to meet that gentleman. He's a very very good friend of a chap I am a good friend with here, or he was, should I say, because. Obviously, um, poor fellow did pass away, but um, his friend is a winemaker, and uh, they, he brought him in. He looked at my brewery before it was a brewery. It was literally a development site with holes dug in the ground and pieces of equipment in a shed nearby and all that kind of stuff, and what a gentleman he was, and a character and a half. <laughs> <laughs> he certainly, and I, I might even have a link, uh, we had a bit of a um, obituary to him uh, when he died because he was such a, you know, a, a character in the industry. People, a lot of people don't give 
guys like that the credit they deserve. But they were the pioneers. There's absolutely no doubt about that. It, it was certainly it was the day before Rockstar Brewers. It was just people who were getting in and doing something and uh, yeah. you know, weren't necessarily putting themselves forward, but were just the just stood out because of their personalities. I think there's, um, you know, you've got to have, it really depends on what angle you come at, whether you're a production brewery or a brew pub or whatever you like to call it. Um, it really depends on your model as to what attributes you need to bring to the table. But in the at the sort of level that we do it here, um, you've got to enjoy hospitality, otherwise you're going to be really in strife. And um, it's not just, but I think the Jeff Showers of the world were in that category, but they also, um, were genuine lovers of the product, so it was it was more than just a way to make money. I might just um, park that because that was certainly something I wanted to talk about. The particularly the hospitality ele- element of what you do, but let's yeah. just step back a little bit for for those who you know. Lobethal is one of those um, regional breweries that you pretty much go to visit. So for people that don't know you personally, tell us a little bit about your background. You had a, an extensive career in banking before uh, the siren song of beer make, making uh, called. My first exposure to Beer and I guess you would, at the time you'd call it the pub industry was as a student at university. <laughs> um, and it wasn't just as a massive consumer, although that was obviously part of it. We didn't need to go to university to learn too much back then. It was all about anything more than 50% in an exam was wasted bar time. I know that sounds pretty dreadful. I guess <laughs> the guys now in a much more competitive school environment have to work a lot harder than we did. But, um, but look, at the end of the day, I, I did bar work in order to get no strings attached to pocket money, um, and I quickly worked out that when you work behind the bar, you get the odd beer for a little less than other people might necessarily pay for it. So it was a great way to not only seek entertainment, but um, have a few quiet beers and, and get some money that I didn't have to explain to mum and dad why I was spending it on whatever I was spending it on. Um and that sort of carried on, and I did a fair bit of pub work, um, and then I um, did an economics degree with a commerce major, came out the other end. At that stage, at coming out of university, I didn't want to be an accountant. I'd worked out pretty quickly that I found the bookwork side of things somewhat boring. Um, and there was a bank floating around that was looking for somebody to employ. Um, they were, It was the first time they were going to be graduates into their workforce, um, this was back in the eight, very early 80s. Um, and I thought, gee, you know, if I learn how to lend money to other people, there's a good possibility I'll know how to borrow money. <laughs> if I know how to borrow money, I might be able to do what I'd like to do, and that's go out and buy a pub. <laughs> um, so I had this glorified opinion of what I saw in hospitality a long time ago. And then what happened with the banking was that every time, and I was not really suited to it, to be completely honest. I did really well, a little bit of luck, um, but most of my success was really, I mean, the cover was that the whole time I kept thinking to myself, this isn't what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, let's continue to learn how to lend money so that we eventually can borrow it a little bit smarter and we'll do the business that we want to do. Well, 25, 24, 25 years later, um, I found myself over in London. Um, I'd done a stint, first of all, outside of Adelaide in Sydney and then back to Adelaide, and then I went over to America and I worked in New York. Um, I had a six-month assignment that turned into 10 years. 
Um, I spent so the whole time in New York. Then I spent time in uh, living, working in the Netherlands, um, all around the and basically all around the world. And finally ended up in London, where another place I'd always wanted to live in because it's actually my um, my uh, father was born in the UK and I was born in the UK, but moved to Australia. I was about five. So that's sort of the background and the stint I did when I was in America. Um, was my first exposure to real craft beer when I left Adelaide. Um, you would drink West End Draft, just like Dad did. Um, it's really sad to see that brewery moving in the direction it has over the last 18 months. But um, And then if you had enough money and you were doing really well, um, you would buy yourself a glass of Cooper's. Um, <laughs> wasn't in as many pubs as the West End was, but it was... A little higher alcohol cost a little bit more, um, and that was considered the Moe Chandon of the beer world in terms of the students' view on things. Uh, and occasionally there might be a lesser blonde or something like that that floated in from someone who'd imported stuff from overseas, and that was kind of my beer thinking. And when I got to New York, um, I was a bit—I was somewhat horrified and thinking I'm going to be a Budweiser drinker. Um, <laughs> and I met a couple guys that were beer nuts. Um, and I've never really met a beer nut before, or beer nerd, I think we sometimes call them. Um, these guys were so into it, it was outrageous. And before I knew what I was doing, I was drinking Sierra Nevada's Pale Ale. Um, went out to California, did a little tour of what was going on at the time, which was significantly tinier than where it is today, and got hooked, basically. And then I spent the next... 15 years until 2005 thinking, how the hell can I get into that industry? That will work really, really well in Australia because the beer market profile in terms of manufacturing was pretty similar back in 1990 in America as it was here. You know? A couple of really large dominant players um, making a fairly generic product distinguishable mainly by the packaging and advertising campaigns. And for me, it was more important uh, what you find in the bottle than necessarily what's written on the label, um, which is why I sometimes get a bit horrified about where we are today. And don't worry, I'm a victim of it too. We played around with our labels to try and make things more attractive. So, <laughs> uh, so that, that's kind of the background as to how I got hooked in, in, into it. I drank beer all around the world and I spent the whole time looking at trying to, how could I start the business? Um but really, uh, and mainly because, as I said, I was I was finding that I didn't feel banking was the future. But for me personally, but every time I tried to leave it, the buggers would give me a little bit more money or a better position or <laughs> pay you for this or do that. It was always something nice there for me. So they must have liked something I was doing. The old golden handcuffs. Yeah, you know, and then 2005 came around and I was in London. I'd been away from Australia for 15 years when I'd originally only thought I was going to be away for sort of six months. <laughs> um, and I just, it was time. I wanted to come home. I love Adelaide. I love South Australia. Um, always wanted to live close to the city, but in a nice little bit of a country sort of settings. Adelaide Hills was perfect for that. Um, so I finally made a decision to come back, and look, I really didn't know. I, want, I had the brewery thing in the back of my mind, but, I don't know whether at the time I was thinking I've got the courage to do this. Can I do it? Do I have the resources? Um, there's certainly no money in our family. 
Um, and I had saved up a bit, but not enough to go out and do something outrageous. So I still had to work and make money to pay for whatever I was going to do. Because you initially wanted to save up, you know, uh, I think you said that if you learn how to lend money, you'll know how to borrow money and with a view to opening a pub. Well, that was pretty much the position. But, you know, I always the other thing I always had in the back of my mind was my grandfather was a publican in the UK and he actually had a couple of pubs. Um, and believe it or not, he was an ex-accountant who made the move into the pub industry to buy businesses before the Second World War that he thought his two sons might mature into. It's the reason he had a couple. Um, and it was quite interesting, too, because his background was very similar to what mine was. So he, um, uh, we, I think his experience was that um, my grandma enjoyed the product more than necessarily um, was was probably needed at the time. And so the business never really made a lot of money and his two sons weren't interested. Um, so he kind of retired without much. And I always had in the back of my mind, my father saying to me, um, I don't care what you do with your life, but don't become a drunk labourer. <laughs> uh, which is why he referred to as somebody that stood behind the bar and just poured beer and did nothing else with it. So... Even though the pub and hospitality was attractive, I wanted another leg to it. And to turn it into a manufacturing enterprise as well, um, kind of ticked more than the hospitality boxes, but it also ticked that desire to do something a little bit extra um, and probably better use the skill sets I picked up working in banking. So how did you go about learning to brew? Um, what 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 did you get I into was arrogant enough to think it can't be that hard. <laughs> <laughs> I um, what I did was in the nineties when I was over in the states um, in New York, I had gotten contact with a thing called the American Brewers Guild, and it was a they did a trainee apprenticeship scheme for wannabe brewers, and they were doing this. In, and I spoke to a chap named Stephen Parks. Um, I think he's in the American Beer Hall of Fame and all sorts of stuff. So he's relatively well-known over in the States. He um, had set up a training school, um, was taking in, I think, groups of about 10 to 15 people every six months, um, and was at the same time, he was an ex, I think, Fuller's brewer who was brewing beer for one of the rather larger craft breweries at the time, a brewery called Otter Creek in Vermont. Um, and he, I'd spoken to him about the course he was doing because I'd looked quite hard at numbers in the 90s. Um, and so it took me a long time before I finally got the courage up to do it, but I did. So to answer your question in terms of what, how did I get the skill sets and all that kind of stuff, I basically made contact with this guy 10 years after I'd first spoken to him. He remembered me, maybe because I was a lunatic, I don't know. Um, and he said, yeah, you can do my course. And it was an avenue to, at the time, there wasn't much in the way of learning, teaching organisations, doing other than unless you want to do food science or something which would take too long. Um, it wasn't much specifically brew-focused. Um, this is all happening in 2005. So I enrolled in his, uh, his course, went over to the States, did a little bit of distance learning first and did his course. And that was a, I think they called it Craft Brewers Apprenticeship, so... And, and through that, I met guys in Canada that were producing equipment. It was, at the time, it was Newland Systems. Now it's called Koenig. Um, they were absolutely fabulous. They were friends of 
seat, and so that got me Steve Park, so that got me kind of picking the right gear, and it went from there. But you obviously had a bit of a flair to it because, from memory, you were winning awards at the uh, South Australian Beer Awards, you know, fairly early. Well, we did. We uh, I had a business partner at the, at the time named Phil. Um, he was also an ex-banker. He went back into banking a couple of years after we were about three years after we started, um, mainly because of demands on his financial position. He had a wife and three children, and the brewery was at that stage was not really set up to produce enough to make it as comfortable as he needed to be, basically. So, And he didn't enjoy the hospitality, I think, as much as I did. So it was more a little bit of a more of a chore for him than me. But what we did was we did four recipes to start off with. We only had four taps. Three of the beers we released straight away, a Hefeweizen, a Pale Ale and a Porter, um, to be honest, all traditional beer styles, the Hefeweizen we did because it's a German area and we quite liked Hefeweizen at the time. The Pale Ale was modelled on Sierra Nevada's Pale Ale and Stephen Parks, who taught me, had worked for Sierra Nevada at one stage, so I had a pretty damn good look at the recipe. I just had to get um, uh, Peter Metting's help from Bintani to get the right grains here to match what the American recipe had had in it. And the porter we did because we thought a dark beer would be nice. We were opening our tap rooms in May, so coming into colder weather in the hills. And the porter's an old British style. So we had a German beer, a British beer, a German beer, a sort of American beer and a a British beer. That's how we started. It was a very traditional uh, beer selection in those days. You You know, all three of those beers with small tweaks Uh, we still make and they still are amongst our best sellers and they still win medals and in the last um, Royal Adelaide show the Hefeweizen I think got a gold and it's a beer I've not entered in a competition for years because when I first put it in a competition I was criticised for the Banana Esther (laughs) which I had put which I had promoted by warm fermenting deliberately to try and get it there (laughs) So I always thought, well, judges aren't going to like this. I won't put it in the competitions. I decided I would last year, and bang, it wins a gold medal. So there you go. It must be one of the last surviving uh, core range hefts then because it was a beer that everyone seemed to have. You know, If you go back to that mid-2000s, everyone had a hef, but yeah. they've fallen out of favour. Yeah, well, when we first started, it was, it was I think it was easily our biggest seller. And I think, if you think about Pale Ale, I mean, Coopers have, have very much dominated, or had very much dominated the Pale Ale market here in South Australia. Um, so you would always be benchmarked or compared with them. And my Pale Ale, very different from Coopers. So um, when you asked me earlier, you know, well, when I made the comment about trying to explain what was different, um, to publicans and things, I had to say no. It's, it's, a, it's called pale R, but it's nothing. Okay, <laughs> um, that's not a bad thing. I mean, I've got massive respect for what those guys do and what they've done with that business and everything else. But um, my beer simply wasn't like theirs. <laughs> um, and then, yeah. So I think the hef it was kind of a little bit user friendly because it was amber in colour. 
little bit closer to what beer most people thought would look like. Um, it was a little bit cloudy, and that wasn't a problem because here in South Australia, we already had Coopers promoting cloudy. Um, um, but it was different enough with our, and it didn't have massive bitterness, so it was going to have a wide appeal. Um, it, I mean, I didn't ever expect it to do as well as it did. It wasn't like I went out and um, sat down and said, what's going to do really well? Um, it, my attitude was, I'm in a niche market. Hopefully there's enough people that like what I like. If I make too much of anything, I'll drink it myself. <laughs> as long as I don't make beer I don't like. But let's look at the styles because you, you so you launched with a um, porter, a pale ale and a um, hef. Um, you've also yep, got a and then, we, and then Well, the next one was Pilsner. Yep, which is still in, in, in the core range. And we steered away a little bit from Pilsner at the beginning because – Everyone said, that's going to be harder to make. You're going to tie up more tank space. You're going to drop the volume, depending upon how you do it, of course. Um, but we we thought, no, we're going to make a bridge to mainstream. We won't try to make something just necessary to appeal to everyone. We'll make what, a Czech-style pilsner. That's what we like. <laughs> um, and that did um, infinitely well as well and probably would have displaced a fair bit of the half sales. That's still the half held its own. And then the next one we tackled, which was all the rage over in the States, was the IPA. Um, and But we thought we'd put a little slant on it. We'd do it more in a British style than necessarily a West Coast American style. Um, and the IPA was madly successful and actually got a gold medal in the Australian International Beer Awards in our second year, um, which actually blew us away. So that was back in 2008. Um and, and the other beers did okay as well. So we, we were actually meddling quite early. And then, um, and I think it's a testament to the fact that we bought good equipment. We had reasonably good turnover volume because our restaurant was doing exceptionally well. So we could, we always had an avenue to keep the beer fresh. Um, and we weren't making too many different beers at the time. Um, but we had a few challenges. I mean, everything was being um, bottle conditioned and bottled by hand with wine equipment. Can you imagine what that was like? <laughs> oh, God. Um, and, uh, I mean, that's probably one of the reasons why my business partner finally said, I've had enough of this. <laughs> it, would take, it would take us six hours to do 500 litres. <laughs> and then we'd, have to, then we'd have to wait a month for it to be able to sell it. <laughs> and then when we did sell it, some of it was carbonated and some of it wasn't. It was a bloody nightmare. <laughs> we got good at it in the end, Matt. <laughs> but, I mean, that was the thing in those days, and I notice you're still bottling. Are you putting beer in cans yet? No, no cans. <laughs> because all of that, um, I mean, it's interesting. A lot of the people who are entering the industry now probably don't remember what it was like trying to scrounge around for a second-hand bottling machine or how, <laughs> or how you did it to, uh, to actually put yeah. beer in package. We had we had a um, we had a room that was was a warm room that would hit twenty degrees and stay nice and comfortable at that. It would hold about ten pallets of beer. We had um, wine filling equipment that I think had been the same sort of equipment used to fill olive oil. Um, it was all manual. Um, the, we moved all the beer by pressure difference, not by pump. Um, we would prime in line between the conditioning tank and the bottling equipment, 
move it very slowly, a little ball valve in the bottling equipment. We would manually put the caps on with a pneumatic capper, and three of us would take, as I said, close to six hours to do five or 600 litres. And that beer had to sit in that room for a month. And what we learned quite quickly is that the beer on the outside of the pallets carbonates more quickly than the beer in the middle of the pallets. It doesn't get quite as much warmth as quickly. Um, if you didn't get the sugar dosing right when we were putting it in line, and we'd move it in line by weight um, as the beer was flowing between the two vessels. Um, if you didn't quite get that right, if you put it in at the wrong time, I mean, the, the variables were considerable. Um, we didn't, to get the, to work out where we were, we decided we would bottle beer that had been fermented with no um with very little, just one volume of carbonation from the fermentation tank, so not running any pressure on them. So we knew a starting point. <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun and a lot of challenge. How much have you modernised and focused on consistency over the last 14, uh, nearly 15 years? It, it became, I mean, consistency was always the most important thing because the last thing you want is someone to love your beer in your brewery, at your, in your restaurant, and then go and taste it somewhere else and taste different. Um so that was hugely the focus, which was the main reason why I finally... And I got relatively okay at the bottle conditioning, but um, it was finally was the decision to get bottling equipment. Um, at that stage, there were it was really pre the canning, but the canning was out there. Um, I had a little bit of a look at what was available. This would have been about 2013, I think. Might have been a little bit earlier, to around about 2013. Um, I did a whole exercise. I looked at where my beer goes, who buys, who was buying it at the time, um, what sort of equipment was out there, and at the and at, at our size and volume, and also the economics of where I wanted to take our business. Um, you got to, my mindset was this was a lifestyle change. Um, I like to be able to do the brewery work or a large percentage of it, at least myself. Um, that's part of the fun. And I was not out there to try and create something that somebody else would want to buy because it's attractive uh, in terms of its financial returns or whatever. I wanted a lifestyle. Um, and I know everyone says that, you know, like that's common these days. Oh, like a, myself and my pet dog and we started this business. Well, I wanted a lifestyle. I wanted to be in hospitality. I wanted to hang out with people. I wanted to drink free beer. Bottom line. <laughs> uh, and I always like to tell people, and there's probably someone from the tax department who will not like this, but I always used to say, not only is it free, but when I taste it for sampling purposes <laughs> and R&D, um, it's a tax deduction. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people who look at this idea of it being a lifestyle business um, seem to think that you know that involves only working fifteen hours a week. You know, uh, saying <laughs> g'day to patrons at the bar. Lifestyle yeah. doesn't mean cruisy, does it? No, no. It's look if you don't enjoy what you're doing, it's a it's a really difficult job. Um, there's a huge amount of cleaning. There's a massive amount of time spent doing what you do. I clean the restaurant still to today. Um, myself. <laughs> um, but when I'm doing that, I'm looking around at things I can improve and change. I've got the mind right in amongst it. Um, 
I look on a good week, I work 100 hours. Um, I don't take days off. I, I mean, occasionally we get a little break. It's not as hard now as it was 10 years ago because I've got a lot of staff to do the front of house side of things. But I still work every hour the bar is open. Every hour restaurant trades, I'm here. And it's such an invaluable piece of feedback in terms of what the customer says to you when you pour a beer and they taste it. And for those who are listening, we're recording this. We started recording this at 7.30 in the morning because you're about to go off and do keg deliveries, is my understanding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you know, that, that's, another little, that's another little issue. Look, I could get somebody else to do my deliveries, but at the level I'm at, I'm, I mean, we're not big, Matt. This is 150,000 litre a year turnover. Around about one third of that is done in the restaurant. The other two thirds out. And the profit margins in terms of contribution to overhead are probably the opposite. So two-thirds from inside, one-third from out. That's kind of how it balances out. And those numbers vary during the year. Um, the, um, the, the competition today is such that I've probably got a little higher percentage of my sales in volume coming from the bar rather than from outside. But... I only sell here in South Australia. Um, I've gone down the distributor route and had um, guys sell the beer for me. And, look, I can put on more volume, but then it starts to impact the size of the volume of equipment I've got and, and my effort. And it just, at where I'm at now, I like to think I'm at for us um, and where I want to be, some of a, somewhat of a sweet spot in terms of volume produced, equipment size, and my effort. But, yeah, it's 100, it's 100 hours. And when I, when I run out and see my customers and drop off the beer in kegs or bottles, that's fun. <laughs> I use a bit of work. And I'm also finding I'm, I'm on the eve of my 61st birthday, and you'd laugh. A few weeks ago, I put 20-odd kegs on the back of the ute and drove the ute with the front wheels off the ground down into town, um, I put the kegs on the back of the ute with the forklift, and when I got down there, I took one off on one of the venues by accident and had to put it back on the back of the ute. Holy dolly, I'm, they're a lot heavier than they were 10 years ago, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I have to ask you, and it's a fairly blunt question, you know, when you hear that you're working 100 hours a week, you're hands-on, you're doing all of this, um, and you've been doing it for, you know, 14 years, are, are you making are, are you making money as a business, and are you paying yourself? You know, like more. W- w- would you make more money working at McDonald's a hundred hours a week than oh, you? Probably. Uh... <laughs> Look, I mean, there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that what I made in banking per year was significantly more than I make doing what I'm doing. But I, there's so much fun when you see a room full of people laughing and chatting and talking and coming up to you and saying, thanks for what you've done and we love it coming here. And and then you go through things like the pandemic that we've just experienced and you shut down for three months and we respond to that with, a, with takeaway food and the community support for what we did um, was unbelievable. I had lines of people that I'm sure were buying our product to help me or help us and to help the guys that work with us, that work in the restaurant, that all continue to have employment irrespective of the fact that we were going through what we were going through. So, 
Uh, it is worth it, you know? Um, and look, do I pay myself a lot of money? No. Um, I'm, my wage now is probably where it ought to be if I was a brewer, um, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, and I pay my wife as well. Um, we have debt. Um, that we the only reason why the business has any debt in it now is because we purchased all of the buildings that we're located in 18 months ago. Good timing, hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the bank was very supportive through the whole period, and the I see the repayment of the of the purchase price of the buildings as a way of basically saving money within my the structure of the organisation, and we. Myself and my wife own it 100%. Um, so is it financially rewarding? Here's a little bit, but could I make more money elsewhere? Absolutely. Had I stayed in banking, I would have retired a significantly more wealthy person. <laughs> Fair enough. It, but, but, I probably, but then again, mate, I might have died of a heart attack from stress <laughs> 10 years ago. Uh, or I might have overconsumed that Sierra Nevada Pale Ale I used to like and died that way. So, oh, mate, that's the way I look at it. Uh, running a site like Brews News is very hard work with a very small team. But I, th- I think of some of the other jobs I've uh, I've done where I was very conscious uh, of my mortality to the point of wishing it some days, and yeah. uh, I, I enjoy what I do. Well, it's not you know. Look, it's not. Um, it's obvious that not only am I talking to you at seven in the morning, you're talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> So you're obviously a lunatic also. Now, how important was it to the business model that you had that you took the idea of a pub that made its own beer, essentially, because you talked about the hospitality yeah. and the, the beer house um, is, is a pub that made its own beer. How much was that key to the success of, of, of the venture? Well, I, I think you have to be, you know, and I'm not, a, I'm not an expert in in either finance or brewing. Um, I just happen to have learned a bit. I think you have to be very, very astute about how you set up the model and what you want to try and achieve out of it. If you're looking to be purchased by a large brewery, then you need a heap of market share. You need to be attractive to that that industry. That's what you want to do. If you want a brew pub, um, you want to make sure the beer is always fresh you need volume, but you need to scale your equipment to the volume that you're trying to achieve. If you're going to be a full production brewery and massively and, and, and go that big step, get it all around Australia and overseas and all that kind of stuff, you need bigger equipment. But that, that huge equipment is going to be – it's going to take some time before it makes a return because of the sheer cost of doing it. So you have to sort of scale yourself for where you want to be, I think. That's what I kind of have learned. Um, and you see breweries now, they start off with, with a smaller smaller brew care and an emphasis on in-house sales, and they gradually build up. That's the opportunity. People want their beer outside. They scale up. I mean, that's a, that's a way to do it. But I think you've got to be clever how you do that. It's not just good enough, I think, to simply buy the equipment because you like the taste of beer, make beer and see where you go. I think that's a recipe for disaster. How hard is it now? Because I was struck whether you thought in 2007 you were missing the wave. Um, yep. And you know, th- there would have been something, I'd imagine, maybe 200 breweries uh, kicking around those days compared to the five or well, 600. I think there were, 
they were they were less than half a dozen here in South Australia. Mm. Um, and it was really new. I mean, most of the uh, several had opened in the eighties and not made it. There were a couple that were doing it. Port Dockbury, I think, springs to mind, had been around for a while. Um, but the uh, the new wave hasn't had not started at all. Um, and the couple guys that were doing it were doing it on a pretty small scale. It wasn't like you would see it in bottle shops and things. I mean, when I say I thought I'd missed the wave, I guess I was probably looking at what was happening in Western Australia um, and starting to happen in Victoria. But, I mean, New South Wales and Queensland didn't have anything going on either. It was a bit not too dissimilar from here. And, and don't forget, South Australia, pretty significant wine capital. So the wine industry was booming. But we were we were certainly at the beginning of it, and but I I was looking at looking at what was happening interstate and thinking, oh God. <laughs> so, but it's in, since then there's been a flood, uh, you know, a literal flood of um, brewers entering. Oh, there's the one market. opening every. I mean, I hear about new on every couple of days. I can't even. I couldn't even tell you how many there are in South Australia now. I think someone told me the other day sixty or seventy. Um, I don't know how many of those do or don't have equipment. How many of them sell lots of beer or don't or. Well, um, I, I wouldn't even know a lot of the guys. Earlier in the piece, I met everybody. You know, for a while there, I was the president of the Microbrews Association here um, and for several years. In fact, this, that would have been around 2010. Um, nowadays, I really can't even tell you who's actually in it. I know who's in my Adelaide Hills area. I mean, the guys from Mismatch and Prancing Pony and Uradler, um, all doing a great job. And but all doing slightly different takes on a similar model, all and all probably with volume aspirations significantly higher than mine. They probably they probably look at me as the idiot. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but how have all of the new breweries impacted your business, if at all? Oh, uh, you know, um, I, I think there's a certain amount of strength comes with having been around for a while, and I think the fact that we make relatively traditional style beers probably sets us a little bit different from the others, although they all do that too, I guess. I I would say the, the competition for shelf space um, in bottle shops and things like that is significantly higher. So I think I said before, you know, we'd probably sell a little bit higher percentage of what we produce in-house than we did before. So that's probably one change. Um, and the canning revolution that we touched on a little bit before was... It's obviously made an impact on us. There are some bottle shops will not buy my beer because it's not in a can. <laughs> um, my preference is still for bottles. Um, when I made the decision to buy bottling equipment, I looked at what you could get for the money that you put into it in terms of speed, in terms of um, rinsing and handling the, 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 the packaging, um, in terms of air pickup, um, all that kind of stuff. And and mostly, as or in addition, I also look hard at um, where my beer goes. And my beer largely in the wholesale market sells to people that are in restaurants. And I still think bottles look better on a restaurant table than a can does, personally. Um, and, you know, I know that's not the case for a lot of people, but and I know bottles don't stack as well in a fridge. I know bottles don't transfer to another state as well as a can would. It's more expensive. They weigh more. Um, 
but I don't sell my beer interstate anyway, so <laughs> that, that doesn't matter. It's almost as if you've been listening to our podcast because they're the things that I touch on, you know, doing a lot of uh, corporate work, pouring beer from a can into a glass just misses a little bit of elegance. Um, it doesn't affect the beer yeah, flavour yeah, at all like except that. the perception of flavour sometimes. And, you know, I will, I will never dispute with anybody the fact that cans are great for craft beer because of their impact on light sensitivity. Um, I have uh, I use amber bottles that work relatively well. That's, of course, you leave the bottle out in the sun. Um, but you shouldn't be leaving a product as nice as a good glass of milk um, with the yeast all still in there and real hops in the sun anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I write on my boxes, please try to keep this refrigerated. It'll be, it'll be nicer. <laughs> Um, I mean, look, I've put bigger labels on the bottles to maybe hide a bit more impact of light. But the sheer fact was that back six, seven years ago, you could buy a canning line for 100 maybe slightly under $100,000, but what you were buying didn't necessarily have the most efficient handling and seaming systems, um, and I just didn't want to take a chance with my product, and I just felt that, glass was what I liked and reflected what I'm about. So I stayed with it and I went to a chap named Norbert um, has a little company called BevTech and he brought some different equipment in for me that's absolutely fabulous. It has worked brilliantly without a hitch since we first installed it. The equipment he, I got him in a year ago to do a little sell, slightly over a year ago before we were all shut down. He did a full service on the whole thing, replaced any washes and things that needed or seals, um, and we still use it without a hiccup. It's absolutely brilliant. So, um, and can I justify buying canning equipment for the extra volume I might get? <laughs> Financially, I don't think so. Unless I wanted to get, unless I wanted to get massively bigger. And I don't. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting you say that because you know, again, I. I I do worry when I talk about, you know, bottles are better for pouring and that sort of thing, that I'm stuck in the the, the paradigm that I grew up in and that, you know, cans were always the, the footy option, um, whereas yeah. glass. You, you must have seen a huge change in, you know, the, the, the beer styles that consumers are demanding, you know, their expectations. And, you know, as, as, as we get older and, you know, a new generation of beer drinkers come through. Can I be really rude, Matt? How old are you? Uh, I'm 52. Okay, so you're almost in the right bracket. If you um, if you cast your mind back to pre-10 years old and you went into a news agency to buy fireworks for Guy Fawkes Night, you would have seen um, a marketing display aimed at a certain segment of the, of the population um, in fireworks. They were all different colours and they had <laughs> paisley patterns on them and flames and cartoon characters and etc. And when I go into a bottle shop now, that's exactly what I see in the beer world. It's quite amazing. Unbelievable artwork. But when I started, like I think I said, might have said this before, in 2005 when I was starting, I was... It, to me, it was so important what's in the bottle, not what's on the label. And I'm not saying that's not important because it is incredibly so now because if you don't do that, you, your product, no one buys it. <laughs> but the uh, but it's shifted. It's all, it's a, some, there's some fantastic 
incredibly creative, very slick marketing in our industry. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But how much pressure is there on your business to keep pace with that? Is, is there any? I struggle with it. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'd spend a little bit of money having someone redesign my labels. The original labels, I sort of had a fair impact on this one. And, you know, when they first designed them for me, the young lady's absolutely bloody fantastic. didn't cost a huge amount of money, but it was important in terms of trying to reposition us a little bit and say, hey, we're still here. Um, and I... Um, at first, I looked and I thought, oh, I don't like that. That's, you know, oh, do we have to write that on there? And, <laughs> uh, and then I kind of started to like it. And now I actually think they look bloody fantastic. And I, I look at the young guys in their cans with all the fancy patterns and things. I think, shit, that's really neat. <laughs> um, but I still buy the traditional beer. <laughs> <laughs> What's next for Lobethal? You know, what you, you've obviously bought the buildings that you're in and invested in the business. But what 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 are your plans uh, for for the next five years? Okay, we um, I've I started about um, oh, probably six or seven years ago now with my own malting, um, and I still want to develop that further using alternate grains. I put it on hold a little bit while the pandemic was on because I had to very focus on staying alive um, but I've got a completely bespoke in-house malting system that just needs a few tweaks that I've learned through playing with that so we have made a gluten-free beer and we've made a beer with triticale and we've made a beer that had only oats that had been malted and played around with a beer with chickpeas and all sorts of lentils and so I've fiddled around a little bit with that because I figured everyone else had done the hop thing out of control, so I was going to try something a bit different, and I'm going to continue to do, to enjoy the hospitality side of it, and I'll keep doing it as long as it's not too much for me. Um, and I would, uh, I don't have a um, aggressive financial exit strategy. Most of my ex-banker friends think that that's ridiculous, but <laughs> um, I often tell people I think what will probably happen here is that um, eventually I'll just die of old age. <laughs> in the brewery and with any luck my wife will realise that what's going on is happening and she'll back over me with the forklift so we get a, a larger insurance payout <laughs> oh mate yeah. it's been a great chat and I, I, I it's been ridiculous that I haven't been down to Lobethal but uh, you, you've inspired me and I'll get down uh, very soon now just so I can have a beer with you and uh, you know maybe even do part part two of this chat but uh, yeah. uh, and don't, don't, don't forget Matt uh, I'll give myself a plug tell all the young guys uh, 10 years ago I was champion small brewery in the Royal Adelaide show last year I was champion small brewery in the Adelaide show so I'm still here <laughs> and I and I was lucky enough to improve on my original performance because they they judged my uh, Irish Red Ale as the most outstanding beer in the show and it's a malt-driven, traditional beer style. And it blew me away because the only reason we put it in the show is my wife wanted it to get judged to see how it would go. <laughs> as, a, as a bit of an old stager myself, to see an Irish Red Ale be champion beer of show actually highlights to me the benefit of the show structure is that it's you know looking at beers as examples of excellence in their category not what's hot and what's not um, as a style. And, uh, you know, yeah. congratulations for doing that. Well, it blew, it totally blew us away, I tell you. But we had a lot of old guys from our local bowling club 
who consume more of that than any other single restaurant in Adelaide, actually all coming up to you saying, I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, Al Turnbull, congratulations on 14 years of Lobethal Beer House and uh, all the best for, well, as many more until a, uh, until that insurance payout kicks in. There you go, mate. Thank you very much. Cheers. <laughs> and that was Al Turnbull from Lobethal Beer House. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Cry and Malt. With over 25 years in the field, Cryer Malt are dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. They are your premium brewing partner and also our partner in good conversations.